Hey, welcome to Rooted Women's Bible Study. We have quite a number of new faces this year, um, so special welcome to the newbies. Um, just a couple of housekeeping items that I want to go over with you before we get started. My name is Cherie Leatherman, and I began the study in 2012 in the basement of this building um, with just a handful of women who were just hungry to know God through the study of his word. And I am truly amazed, truly amazed, that's an understatement, how God has worked in this little Bible study, in this little building, and how he continues to bring women here from all over our community. You are not here by accident or by coercion if a friend kind of pressured you into coming. You may think you're here that way, but you are here because God himself is drawing you. And he's drawing you to himself through the book, this book that we're going to be studying. So just a little bit about me. I'm married to Keith. We've been married for 34 years. We have two grown sons. Both of them are married. And they both live about three hours away from me in opposite directions, which is horrible. <laughs> we also have three of the most amazing, spunky, loud, delightful grandchildren that could ever be born on this planet. But the most important thing that I want you to know about me is that once I was dead, spiritually dead in my sin and in my trespasses. I was dead to this book. It meant nothing to me. I was dead to the things of God, but God in his infinite mercy, through the power of his Holy Spirit, breathed his life into my soul, and I came alive in Jesus Christ. And he did that through this book, the living word of God. And this is why I'm here. This is why I do what I do. He has put this passion in my soul to know him and to make him known to other women by studying his trusted words. This is why I'm here, and this is why you're here. That we may know the true and living God that is revealed in the Bible. So normally when you come here every week, we're going to be looking at the scriptures. We're going to be studying it. Verse by verse, line by line, word by word. But on this first day of study, it's always a little bit unique in that it's a day for reuniting with old friends and it's a day for introducing yourselves to new friends. It's actually a day of introduction. We are being introduced to one another. We are introduced to the format of the study. We are being introduced to our small groups, our, our method of studying, our study guides. We're being introduced to the Bible itself. And we'll also be introduced to the text that we will be immersed in for the next 11 weeks. And I want to encourage you to be here every week. In-person studying is optimal. Studying with others will expand our understanding of God's word. It helps us grow in truth. It gets us out of our own echo chambers and our own heads but I recognize that that's not always possible because we live in a, a fallen world and we've got kids and there's sickness and there's all the things. And I know that. I know schedules can get crazy. So it's not going to always be possible. But it, so if you miss a week, you can still study at home with your study guides and then listen to the teaching. We have a Rooted Women's Bible Study podcast on iTunes or Podbean. You can just Google Rooted Women's Bible Study and it should come up. 
If you are on Facebook, we have a Rooted Women's Bible Study Facebook group, and I post the podcast links there. And I also send out an email every Tuesday morning, usually, um, with, the, with the podcast links. So I would encourage you, if you can't make it, to continue to do your homework and then continue, then listen to the teaching. All right. That's all the housekeeping. Let's start our time with prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks that you are the God that pursues us, that draws us to yourself. And Lord, here we are, eager to learn, to, know, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be with us in this study this year, this semester. I pray for your blessing. I pray that you would work in each of our hearts. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can see wonderful things in your word. I ask that we would grow in the knowledge of you and grow in our love for you and grow in our obedience to you. And I just pray that you would bring about fruit in each one of our lives through the study of your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us, for preserving it for us. And Lord, we pray for um, your work in our lives and in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of our study this year is Trusted Words. What does the word trust mean? Well, trust is an assured reliance on the character, the ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. One, it's one in which confidence is placed. So trusted words, then, are words that are guaranteed. They are words that we can totally rely on. We can stake our lives on the truthfulness and reliability of these words. Now, we live in a world that is inundated with words, right? On a daily basis, we are bombarded with words telling us what we're supposed to be doing all the time. Telling us how we're supposed to think. Telling us what we should eat or not eat. When we should eat and when we should not eat. Everywhere we turn, people are speaking boldly and confidently and making all sorts of claims, calling on us to trust their words. Turn on the news. Watch YouTube. Social media channels are filled with voices crying out to be trusted. And many of them are saying contradictory things. It can make you, it makes me, just a little bit crazy. Just a little bit. Who are we to believe? Who do we trust? How do we know what words to trust, to believe, to build our life upon? And it really matters because what we believe to be true informs how we live our lives. And because it really matters, the amount of words that are coming at us all the time, the loudness with which the words are uttered can be overwhelming. And they can lead us into a sense of frustration, anxiety, despondency, and cynicism. And I've experienced all of that. What is truth? Is there even truth? You start to think. Is there even any place that I could go to find truth? Is there any such thing as trusted words? Well, I'm here to tell you, yes. Yes, there is. But you're not going to find it coming from the government. 
And you're not going to find it coming from the science community. You're not going to find it coming from the media or social media or any other platform. Where then can you find trusted words? In the middle of all of these loud and confident voices, there is one more voice crying out to be heard. And that is the voice of truth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. And we are going to look at verses 1 through 11 very briefly this morning. We're not doing a deep dive into it, but we're going to use these verses to help us understand about the trusted words that we're going to be looking at. Now, Proverbs is a, is a book that's in the middle of the Bible. It's called Wisdom Literature, and it's written in a poetic format. And it uses beautiful, picturesque words to teach us truth. And in Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a woman. Wisdom is not literally a woman. It's personified as a woman. Verse 1 says, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. Literally, every voice in the marketplace that is calling out is claiming to be wisdom, is claiming to be truth. Every voice you hear coming out of your computer or your phone claims to be speaking the truth. And in the middle of all of these voices claiming to be true wisdom is the one that actually is true wisdom. Which voice is it? How do we know true wisdom from all the counterfeits? True wisdom is wisdom that comes from God. The Apostle James tells us that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives wisdom generously to all who ask without reproach. So true wisdom, truth, is the words that come from God. And it is this word that we find in this book, his book, the Bible. This is true wisdom. These are the true and trusted words of God. They are the very words of God, which are crying out through time, through history, throughout the entire globe, inviting people to look in here to find true wisdom. These words of God are true and can be fully trusted. They are the only words that you can count on, that you can rely on to be truthful and to be trusted. From Genesis to Revelation and every word that's in between, every word that you read are trusted words. Why? These words are trusted words because they come from a trusted God. Now, wait a second. You might be thinking, these words come from God? I thought men wrote these words. And not only that, I heard that this book is filled with inconsistencies and errors. Have you ever heard that? I hear that all the time. These words do are written by men, but they were written by men who've been filled with the Holy Spirit and inspired by God to write the very words of God. Now, I want you to think about the miracle that that is. 
That God would use fallen, broken men, and he would entrust his words to them so that they would proclaim his word to their generation is stunning. He didn't have to do it that way. But he chose to entrust his words to these men. And we can be confident that while men wrote the words of God, these are God's words. Listen to what Timothy says. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, this is all scripture right here. It is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good word, work. Second Peter, Peter says in Second Peter 1, 19 through 20, he says this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, it's been confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God breathes life into us, and God breathed his words into these men, and they wrote them down and they proclaimed them so that we could have them. So scripture, the Bible, can be trusted because God can be trusted. Look again at Proverbs um, chapter 8 verses 5 through 9. Not only can scripture be trusted, but these words of God are good. He says, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips, All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find nothing. who find knowledge. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips, says the Lord. God cannot speak anything wicked. It is an impossibility because God is without sin. Nothing twisted, nothing crooked can come from him. It is impossible for God to lie and there is no evil in him. So nothing evil or untruthful can come from God, which means that all the words that come from him are a reflection of him. God is good, therefore his word is good. God is noble, therefore his words are noble. God is right and righteous, therefore his words are righteous. God is truth, therefore his words are truth. And it is clear that scripture itself is claiming to be the word of God. But scripture also tells us that we can know that this is the word of God because it proves itself true. Psalm 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. 
Over and over and over again in our world, truth claims fail. People proclaim truth with their truth to us, and it doesn't prove to be true, right? But God's word is different. It will always prove to be true, always, because God is watching over his word in order to perform it. I mean, look at history. Look at the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament examples of God's word and their fulfillment. Think about Noah, and God had come to Noah and said, I am going to destroy the world with a flood because of the wickedness. It took 120 years, but God was watching over his word, and it proved true. Think about Abraham and his covenant um, when God covenanted with him. And Abraham is kind of in this sleepy state dream. And God says to him, your ancestors are not going to inherit the land right away, but they're going to be in the land as slaves. They're not going to be free. And he said, I will bring them out. 420 years had to go by. I bet all of those generations felt that the Lord had failed them. Did his word prove to be true? It did. 420 years, at just the right time and in just the right place, God rescued his people. The word of the Lord proves true. And then we have the ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment. Everything that is promised in the Old Testament scriptures is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was born, All of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in him, in that tiny little baby. From Genesis 3.15, when God said, I will bring an offspring who is going to crush the head of the serpent and right the world that has gone wrong, all the way through the Old Testament, these all were... were, um, Prove true in the person of Jesus Christ. You can even look at our world today, and we can see that God's word proves itself to be true. The wages of sin is death, God's word tells us. And we see death everywhere and all around us. We see evidence of the truthfulness of God's word. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away the cords from us. Every day on the news, we can see the governments gathering together, seeking to throw off what they think are shackles from God. The word of the Lord proves true because God's word is true and can be trusted and in all honesty I got to be honest it's the only source of truth and we measure all other words to this word the word of God it is our only source of truth and in a world filled with counterfeits and this book above all else and the study of this book is the pursuit of great treasure But more on that in just a few minutes. Keep that in your head. The Bible is God's word. It is true, and it is right, and it is good. And every word of God proves true. But there are a ton of people out there that are using God's word to validate their own truth and promote things that are anti-biblical. 
It's another area we, where we have a, a multitude of voices coming at us, constantly asserting with authority what the Bible is saying. There are so many interpretations. What are we to do with this? Well, here's the thing. Satan himself uses God's word. In fact, Satan probably knows it better than you and I do. He uses it to tempt us. He twists it. He distorts it. He takes it out of context to deceive, to destroy, and to kill. And there are many in our world today that follow after his footsteps. They're doing the same thing. They are taking the words from this treasured book and using them to deceive people, to lead them astray. God's word, this book is not a magic book. It's not a book of potions. It's not a book where you can just speak things into existence and just say these words and it will be so. It's not a magic book. And it's not a book that's primarily about you and me. And we need to understand that there is so much confusion surrounding this book because there are right ways and wrong ways to handle the book. 2 Timothy tells us this. In 2 Timothy 2.15, do you see why I picked 2 Timothy Timothy to study? It's a good book. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If scripture has to tell us to rightly handle the word of truth, that means that there is a wrong way to handle the word of truth. And egregious events have happened in the world, in world history and are even happening today because people are not rightly handling the word of truth. So how do we rightly handle the word of truth? That's why we're here. That's what we're here to do, to learn how to handle the word of truth. The first thing I want to say, and how do we rightly handle the word of truth, is we need to understand what the Bible is, what it's about, what its purpose is. This Bible is a book of literature. Really, you could call it a library. It's 66 books. It was written over a period of thousands of years by a variety of men from all different stations of life. It was written in three languages on three continents, and yet it's one book with one divine author with one message. This book is God's revelation of himself. He is revealing himself in the pages of scripture. We learn to know God as we study this book. We learn to learn to know what he's like and what his character is like. Not only is he revealing himself to his people, it's a revelation of his activity in the world, what he's doing to bring about the redeemer, his plan of redemption, salvation. The Bible is proclaiming in each one of these books the work of God in bringing about that promised offspring from Genesis chapter 3. The one that will crush the head of the serpent and bring salvation to God's people. It is his revelation of himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This book is about Jesus John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says, you search the scriptures, and he's speaking to the Pharisees who knew the scriptures inside and out. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. These scriptures are bearing witness about Jesus. 
And then in, in Luke's gospel, 24, 44 through 45, after the resurrection, Jesus is, is teaching his disciples and he, sa- he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the whole Old Testament was written about Jesus. All of it. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So the first point in rightly dividing the word of truth is understanding that the main purpose of scripture is to show us Jesus. This is the key to understanding and studying the word of God rightly. This book is not about you or me. It's not a me-centered book. It's about Jesus. And everything in this book points to him and is about him and helps us to know more and more about him. We also secondly need to understand the process, that there's a process involved in studying. That sounds really unspiritual, right? Just sounds really unspiritual. There should not be a process to studying the Bible. We should just be able to sit down with our Bibles and it could be downloaded into our brains and we will be immediately knowledgeable and understand it all, right? What did Paul say in Timothy? Again, I'm going to read 2 Timothy 2.15 to you again. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. A worker that needs not be ashamed. Okay, there it is. It's going to take some work, effort. There's a process involved in studying the scriptures and rightly handle it. So let's spend a few minutes looking at the process. First of all, I want to talk about our posture as part of the process, the posture of, our, of studying. We can either be humble or prideful, right, in our posture, independent or dependent, prayerful or unprayerful. Our posture is to be one of humility and prayerfulness. When we approach the scripture with humility, we are seeking to receive from the spirit understanding. So this changes how we approach God's word, how we sit down to study it. We are not coming to put on the text our ideas or to find for ourselves proofs. We are coming to receive. So we're sitting at the feet of Jesus receiving from him. Pride's approach looks to undermine, to find fault with, to criticize, cynicism. Humility says, I've come in faith to hear the words of God, to receive and to fully accept what the word of truth is teaching me, and then to submit to that. We want to be prayerful. We are utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. Jesus had to open the disciples' minds in order for them to understand the scripture, and we are no different. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit, the major, major work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And I think it's a work of the Holy Spirit that doesn't get a lot of, of airtime. We focus on, on the Holy Spirit in more um, like healing ways or prophetic ways, but one of the major things that the Holy Spirit has been given to us for is to help us see Jesus, to know Jesus. Listen to the words of Jesus when he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send 
to you from the Father and the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The helper is there to bear witness about Jesus, to help us see Jesus, to help us understand Jesus, to help us rightly divide the word of truth. John 16, Jesus also says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is not an independent agent. He is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. And he has been sent to speak the words of God into the hearts of the believer. He authored this book and now he's speaking his book into the hearts of the believer. He will never, ever, ever lead us into new revelation. Anything different from this book, even if an angel were to say it, needs to be thrown out because the Holy Spirit is united. He is one God. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not going to give a different message than that's already been given. He reveals to us Jesus in his word. So the posture of humility, willing to receive God's word, and dependent on the Spirit to give us understanding is essential to rightly dividing the word of truth. The next thing I want to talk about is that we understand that there are steps that we are going to take in proper Bible study. And this, these steps actually apply to all literature. We know that from high school English, but somehow we forget this when it comes to the Bible. But the Bible is ultimately a book of literature. And so we use these steps in the process of proper study. And one of the foundational things that I want to teach you before we get into the steps is one of the most important things that I want you to remember about the process of rightly dividing the word of truth is the word context. Now, I want you to take your pen and your note paper in your study guides and I want you to write in big letters context on your page just somewhere on your page did you do it is it written down okay now I want you to take with your pen and I want you to cross out text cross out the part that says text what are you left with con that's what I want you to remember. Whenever you take the text out of context, you will be conned. This is how the greatest deceptions happen. When people lift verses and build whole theologies completely out of context. If you forget everything else I've said today, don't forget this. If you take the text out of context, that is when you will be conned. So what does it mean to study in context? Well, it means that the scriptures were written by the Holy Spirit of God, but they were also written by our human authors. Remember that. And they were written at a specific point in history to a very specific audience with a specific purpose in mind. Those authors had faces in front of them, and they knew they had a purpose in what they wrote. And understanding that is important to understanding context and then to eventually be able to make application today. We need to understand that there are multiple genres. 
There's historic narrative, there's poetry, there are letters, there's apocalyptic literature, there's prophecy, and they are not all read in the same way. You don't write, read poetry like you read a history book. You just don't. You don't read a history book in the same way you read a letter. So understanding what genre you're reading or studying helps us keep scripture in context and interpret it rightly. There's also the arc of redemption in the story. We find Christ in all of scriptures. And this is a quote by Alistair Begg um, as he talks about what the ark of redemption in the story. We find Christ in all of scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. And understanding where this passage that you're reading or studying is in that great arc of redemption helps us keep things in context. So that's the background, now the steps. The first step is you're going to read for comprehension. I know this sounds like an English class. Reading comprehension, we probably all hated this in English class. But reading comprehension is just saying, what does the text say? What does it just say? So we read through the text. We notice things like repeated words. And pay attention to that. Repeated words, repeated phrases to help us understand what the text say, says. We look up words in the dictionary. We're not asking you to look up in a Greek lexicon or anything like that. We just look it up in the dictionary. Looking up words in the dictionary helps give um, just better understanding of what the text is saying. Sometimes we'll rewrite the text in our own words. These are all ways that we can use to help us to understand what the text is saying, reading comprehension. So that's the first step. The second step is interpretation, and that asks the question, what does the text mean? You can't ask the the question, what does the text mean, if you don't know what it says. So the order is important. What does it say, then what does it mean? But not, what does it mean to me? We're not asking the question, what does it mean to me, yet. We're asking the question, what did the original author intend the meaning to be? So that's where the context really helps us. What did the author intend it to mean? When we say, when we come to the scriptures, and I've hinted at this already, and we bring our own interpretation and put it on the scripture, that's called eisegesis. But that's when distortions happen. We're seeking an interpretation to draw out of the scripture what, what was intended, what, what is meant. We have to set aside as best we can our own worldview, our own cultural context, our own thoughts and ideas, and humbly and prayerfully seek to know God's worldview and God's mindset and submit to that. And I'm just gonna admit right here and now, that's hard. It's really hard to do. Sometimes we don't even know that we're putting our own belief systems and mindsets um, on the text because we're saturated in our cultural world. And it's really hard sometimes to discern when we're putting on the text something that's not there. But we're prayerfully asking God to help us do that and doing the best that we can. And that's why studying in community is so important. Because we want God's word to impact us, 
to change our worldview, to change our mindset. So we do this. We're seeking um, to understand the interpretation of the original author um, by keeping everything in context, like we've already talked about before. But don't just pull a verse out. What's the verse say before and after? What's the chapter say? What's the whole book saying? We keep things in context. We understand what genre we're reading. We allow scripture to interpret scripture. Scripture, Bible cannot, they cannot contradict itself because God is not a God of contradiction. So you can't come up with two opposing ideas and say that they're both coming from the Bible. So in light of this, how um, we, we take the difficult and vague passages of scripture and we interpret them in light of the plain and clear passages of scripture. So what does the text say? What does the text mean? And then thirdly, how does this change me? The application. How does this apply to my life? How does this change me? And we approach this step with a God-centered perspective. We first want to ask of the text, what does this teach me about God? So many times we're so anxious to find out, how do I need to change? What do I need to do? Tell me what I need to do. Just tell me what to do. And then we miss God altogether. And so we want to keep in the forefront of our minds that this book is the book that's teaching us about God. And so we want to first ask, what, is it, what do we learn about God? And then in light of who God is, how do I now need to change? How does this change me? Do I, do I need to repent? Do I need to give thanks and praise? What changes do I need to make to align myself with God's word? Now, your study guide is designed to do all of this for you, with you. So as you're studying Timothy, Titus, and Philemon this year, you are learning how to rightly divide the word of truth as you rightly divide the word of truth. The questions are formed with this in mind. So you will be learning how to study as you study. Okay, so let's take a few minutes to set the context for our study, for the books that we're going to be looking at. We're going to be studying for this year, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. The personal letters of Paul are First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, but First and Second Timothy and Titus can also be referred to as the pastoral epistles because Timothy and Titus are both pastors over specific churches. They are also referred to as the personal letters because they are addressed to individuals. And yet at the same time, while they're personal, they're not private. These letters are public letters. They are intended also to be shared with the church. So who wrote the letters? All of them were written by Paul, and I just love it when Scripture tells us who the author is. makes it very easy for us to figure this out. They were written by the Apostle Paul. Saul, or Paul, um, Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name. Um, He was a Jew. He was a highly educated Jewish man who was a Pharisee. He He was very learned in the Scriptures. He was trained under a famous rabbi called Gamaliel. He was a contemporary, living, living at the same time as Jesus. 
but he was born and raised in Tarsus, which is in modern Turkey. Paul was very zealous for the things of God, and he zealously pursued the destruction of this sect of Jesus followers, believing that he was working on behalf of God to remove these blasphemers from the faith until God stopped him in his tracks, literally stopped him in his tracks. When Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was never the same. He went from zealously hating Jesus and his people to zealously proclaiming Jesus and shepherding his people. Paul is a beautiful picture of what truly happens when a person meets Jesus. You don't go on with your life in the same way you did before. You're radically changed, radically altered. Your mission in life, your purpose in life becomes Jesus's mission and his purpose. Your loves in life, your loyalty become Jesus. Now, Paul became, after meeting Jesus, an apostle by the will of God, not man. And Paul is, has written almost over half, about half of the New Testament. So he is the author of the letters that we're looking at this semester. It's also written by the Holy Spirit, as we've already stated. God wrote through Paul by the Holy Spirit. The next question we want to ask ourselves is, who was the intended audience? Once again, this is easy for us because Paul tells us who his intended audience is. Timothy was written to Timothy. Titus was written to Titus. He's another, both of these men were pastor overseers of churches, Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete. Philemon was written to Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy man um, who had a church that was meeting in his home. So I'm not going to go into detail on these three men and give you all, all the info about them. You're going to be looking up the info in Scripture in your homework this week. But I also want to mention that um, the intended audience was also the churches that they pastored. And then also the church at large, because even for us today, in, in America, these words are for us because by God's providence, these words are a part of our holy scriptures. Now, what genre are these writings? They're all letters. And they were letters that were written in the way letters were written in that time period. They follow a pattern of the way that they were written, that people wrote letters in that way. And so when we're studying letters, it's very important that we, we keep in mind the whole letter, always. We have to keep that in mind. So if I wrote you a letter, I wouldn't want you to take just a sentence out of the middle of my letter and just build my whole teaching on that one sentence, right? It's very important that we keep the letters together because he has a flow of thought. And it's hard to do that as we're studying together. We're going to be just looking at like five verses every single week. So it's sometimes hard for us to keep the whole when we're looking at the little bit. But what I'm going to have you do every week is we're going to do a lot of repeated reading. You're going to read the whole book of, of Timothy every week. When we get to Philemon, I want you to read the book of Philemon every day. It's only one chapter, so it shouldn't be too hard. But we want to keep in mind the whole letter. Um, when was it written, the dates of, of the writing of these letters? Well, Philemon, out of these four books that we're looking at, was probably the first one written. It was written um, around 60 AD. 
And um, that was the period of time when Paul was in Rome under house arrest, his first imprisonment in Rome. And if you recall, he was in Rome for two years under house arrest. He wasn't allowed to leave, but he was able to um, freely proclaim the gospel. He was writing letters. He was teaching. People were coming to him. Um, And it was during this time that Paul would have written um, to Philemon. Now, 1 Timothy and Titus were probably written in the period between 62 and 64 AD, a little bit maybe later after Paul's release from his house arrest. Um, Just by historic note, it was in 64 AD when the great fire happened in Rome. So just to give you a little context of what was happening in history, do you remember the great fire in Rome? Um, Under Nero, the fire was started, and the onslaught of persecution of Christianity began following that great fire. So he's writing just maybe in the time frame of that, um, maybe a little bit before that fire happened. So things are starting to literally heat up for the church, okay? Um, So that's the time frame for... um, 1 Timothy and Titus. 2 Timothy is Paul's last words. It was probably written um, 64 to 66 AD. It is believed that Paul may have had a second imprisonment before his martyrdom, and it was um, believed that 2 Timothy was written in that time period. You will notice as you're reading through um, these books that 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus are much later in the life of the church. And we see a much more developed, organized church in these books than we see early on in the books of Acts, in in the book of Acts, when the church was just being formed. And what was Paul's purpose? Well, I'm just going to talk about the purpose for 1 Timothy and for Philemon. Paul always writes his, all of his letters within a particular context. There is always something going on in each of these churches when he writes to them um, that have come to his attention, and he is compelled by the Holy Spirit to address that. So it's important for us to understand what that is so then we can rightly interpret the letter today. So in 1 Timothy, there's a couple things Paul is writing to address. He's addressing false teachers. That's in almost all of his letters. But he's addressing false teachers in the church and the need for the people of God to know truth and to be able to discern between the false words and the true words and trusted words of God. And then in um, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 15, Paul kind of spells out what he's, why he's writing. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, so that you might know how you, one ought to behave in the household of God. So within this, this passage, this First Timothy and Titus, we're going to see instructions on how to conduct ourselves in the church, how to choose leaders, things like that. There's instructions on how to organize in the church, but there's also instructions for the lay people and how we're to behave and how we're to conduct ourselves as believers in the church. One of the major themes threaded throughout First Timothy is that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. We're changed by the gospel. And Philemon, I love that we put Philemon in with this because Philemon is a living example of, that, of lives changed and what that does in a cultural context, 
in dicey societal situations, when we have the gospel lived out in the life of Onesimus, who is a slave, and his owner, Philemon. And so we will be looking at that, and I'm excited about that. It's a beautiful book. <sighs> that was a lot, wasn't it? I feel like I might have overwhelmed you. Maybe. Sounds like a lot of work to read the Bible, doesn't it? Study the Bible. Again, why can't we just read it and have the Holy Spirit downloaded into our minds and hearts just magically? Wouldn't it be awesome if we could get physically fit that way? If we could lose weight and still eat whatever we wanted to eat, and we could get strong without exercising? Some of you are runners. Some of you are CrossFitters. Currently, I nap. I can tell the difference. We don't get results without effort in any area of our lives, do we? We want to, but we don't. And the greater the effort that we put into something, the greater the result will be. Paul tells Timothy that bodily training is of some value. So it is valuable. It's good. Go out there and do your CrossFit. But training in godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for this life and for the life to come. Training in godliness, training in the word of God is of value in every way. Now I want you to go back to your Bibles, back into Proverbs 8, and starting in verse 10, please hear the word of the Lord coming out of your Bibles into your heart. He says, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you desire cannot compare with her. Do you hear what God is telling us? There is nothing that you can desire that is worth more than what you're going to find in this book. Nothing. The effort that you put into studying this book will be worth it because there is nothing on earth that you can desire that is going to be more valuable than what you're going to find in this book. Why? Because wisdom is not ultimately a thing. Wisdom is ultimately a person. Wisdom is Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 1, Corinthians 1 tells us that Christ, Jesus, is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Jesus is the wisdom and he is the word which we are earnestly seeking in our study of this book. And he is better than jewels. He is better than the choices of gold. He is better than anything that you can desire because in him is life. There is nothing. Girls, let me tell you, there is nothing that you can desire that is going to be more valuable than Jesus. And let me tell you, there is no shortage of things that I desire. There is not. 
I was thinking about this. I desire a good marriage, a beautiful home. I desire good health and boundless energy. I desire good friendship, a good relationship with my grown children. I desire peace in my soul. I desire not to struggle with depression. These are not bad desires. They're actually really, really good ones. But these desires that my heart longs for can't even come close to comparing with what we can have in Jesus. I want you to take just a moment and think about your own heart. What desires lie in there? What is your deepest desire? Is it to find a husband? Perhaps you have a husband, but you wish he was a godly husband? Perhaps your deepest desire is children and you've been waiting and longing for a child. Perhaps you struggle with addiction and desire to be free. Perhaps you struggle with mental health issues and desire to be well. These are wonderful. These are good desires. But as good as they are, Jesus is better. Jesus is worth more than getting your heart's desire because our hearts were made for him and we will not be satisfied. Even if we get everything our hearts desire, we will not be satisfied until we find our rest in him. So, welcome. Welcome to the trusted words of scripture that will lead us to finding our heart's desire in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do ask that you would please do that in us. Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a hunger for you so that we would seek you in the pages of scripture. Lord, help us to um, be able to seek you and to find you if we seek you with all of our heart. I ask again for your blessing. I ask for your strength um, and your power to be at work in us as we embark on this new um, study. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.